Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Sports Dome podcast, the main podcast, not the Ashes Breakdowns. This is a main podcast. The plan is for this to be a weekly podcast in which I discuss all the sporting stories around the world. This week, we will do the Wimbledon Week 1 review and discuss some transfers. We have uh, a special guest, Sebastian Lacasse, coming from Miami. He's a football writer, but on Medium and, and a fiction writer. He has many books published. Yeah, I, I've been lucky enough to have him join me to discuss some transfers. Um, and then on my own, I will take you through uh, the major storylines and insights from Wimbledon Week 1. Let's get into it. Let's discuss some transfers. I have with me Sebastian Lacasse all the way from Miami. Want to introduce yourself, Sebastian? What do you do? Yeah, first, uh, thanks for having me on. Um, so right now, I do a lot of, I'm a writer by trade, so I do a lot of fiction writing, but I also do football. Yeah, a lot of fiction. I do sports writing on medium.com. I run a publication on a hat trick. So, you know, we do transfer news, history of football, just player profiles, things like that. Yeah, yeah, you find all this stuff in the description oh, i'll make sure i link everything for you my friend. um yeah. we'll have it there right yeah so let's look at transfers we'll start off with um i guess dominic Savaslai from from liverpool um what, what do you reckon about him i think he's good man i think yeah, he's yeah. a really really smart transfer for liverpool yeah 70 yeah. million as well um yeah. i think if club is willing to pay 70 million for someone he he sort of really likes him i think that's sort of like right a, i want him um I think yeah. the one thing I noticed with him is that because he plays already in, in, in a German team, um, mm-hmm. not to say that Liverpool play in a German way, but a, a lot of the German teams have this sort of gegen pressing style, um, right. especially a lot of the high high table German teams. And Leipzig are a very sort of energetic gegen pressing style. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I was watching back a few of the games because um, I'm writing a piece on Sabatlai right now as well. It will come yeah. out soon. Um, awesome. um, yeah, but I was watching, I think I watched the... Um, I watched a game against Bayern, the one they won, like three match days left. Yeah. Um, I watched the the cup final, and I watched the first leg against Man City, the one all at, at Leipzig. Um, yeah. And they press high against Man City. They're a bit more timid. That happens when you when you were a Guardiola team, and when you were yeah, a team sense. that's probably the best in the world. Yeah. You can't fault um, them for that, but <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but I think yeah, that that high energy, the high pressing, I think it'll make him sort of a bit of a coherent fit into Klopp's system. Because I think Klopp is going to go with that same sort of gag and pressing. What, what I agree, reckon? yeah. Liverpool, yeah. I mean, you got really fast transitions, pacey players. And I think Sabal's life fits in like perfectly yeah. in there. He's also, he's got a mean uh, shot outside the six-yard yeah, box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, some I'm of a... the... Yeah, go for it. Yeah, I was reading, a, I was reading an article. Um, do you know Umir? Umir from... He's pretty big on Twitter. He's a tactical writer. I don't, good, actually. Um, I'll link you some of the stuff after. He, yeah, yeah. he writes some good stuff. Um, so he basically wrote an article on... Um, I'll discuss this when we get to Declan Rice as well, because I think there's a few points in this article that I read that makes very good sense with Declan Rice. But he basically talked about like how like one percenters are making such a big, big sort of difference in football now. Like People literally get signed. Like like the price literally might go from 55, 60 million to 70 million just because of like set-piece abilities or like right. um, shooting abilities. So... Um, there was a set piece against Man City that they had. Um, Sevoslay was outside the box. Um, it was a corner. And they basically whipped it to him outside the box. And he took an absolute long shot. Edison made a pretty good save, I think. Um, yeah. And then there was a corner. And next corner, Guardiola scored off. Um, so right, I remember that. Shows how sort of invaluable that, that ball striking ability is. Um, yeah. And yeah, you're right. He has a mean, mean shot. 
Um, so from midfield, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he lets go uh, a few times. That's what I'm. I mean, so so think you have you have Gakpo, you have Nunez, you have Salah. So they're already going to be attracting the opposition, the defenders. Exactly. And exactly. then you have a threat like Sabozlai. That's that's open. Yeah, I yeah. Mean, that's that's dangerous. And even even McAllister, like making runs from from back post. Um, yeah. And like if Thiago plays, which I don't, I don't think Thiago, Sabozlai, and McAllister will play together. Uh, I think that's too attacking of a midfield. They'll probably yeah. have Fabinho in there, or if they sign Lavia, maybe him, or uh, Manu Kone if they're still looking at him. That's slowed mm-hmm. down for a bit. But yeah, positionally, I think he'll be what um, right, right center mid. I reckon. That's um, yeah. Yeah. So that's if they go with the four three three. But towards the end of the season, they were doing that box mid box midfield, um, where they right. had Fabinho and Trent as essentially like. The double pivot kind of, and then they yeah, and Trent the, was inverting. And, yeah, yeah, which I thought choose. worked well for him. Yeah, yeah, and I think they'll probably continue with that from the signing. Like, I think by signing McAllister so much, like, it sort of indicates they might want to continue to go with that box midfield. Yeah. Um. So I think then McAllister will probably play the left hand space, um, and Sebastian will play the right hand space, and mm-hmm. that's where he plays for Leipzig as well. Um, he usually plays either right mid, um, right wing sometimes even. So like, mm-hmm. uh, I was reading an article. Um, it was actually a decent point. I didn't consider. Um, Salah goes in January for the African Cup of Nations. Right. So um, I think he will. He could be a fill-in at right wing when when Salah's gone as well. So Absolutely. versatility though. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say. I think that's another thing that makes him such a smart signing because, I mean, as an all-around forward and as an attacking presence on Liverpool, I think he's very versatile. So Klopp and Klopp is the. So he's gonna be able to use him in a bunch of different areas. Yeah, yeah. Um what do you what do you think about his sort of I guess his other skill sets? Are there any skill sets that really sort of stand out to you, fascinate you about about Sebastian? Yeah, his his ability to penetrate open spaces, I think, is actually yeah. incredible. What whether he has a lot of space or whether he's wriggling through three or four defenders. Yeah. I mean yeah, no, the, the kid is four. I, I saw he's already, like, captaining the Hungarian national team, which yeah, yeah, yeah. makes absolute sense, even though he's only 22 years old. But no, I mean, some of the times you just see him dribble his way through three or four defenders and create yeah. an, an attacking position. Yeah, I think he's very, um, I think he's very technically good. And I think he's yeah. also very tactically intelligent. I think he knows mm-hmm. where the spaces are. Um, so, like, he'll know when he just needs to just give the ball away, like a simple horizontal pass and just, you know, yeah. don't try anything. But he also knows, like, for example, um, uh, Leipzig, Leipzig play Timo Werner and Andre Silva uh, a lot together. And that's essentially yeah. two strikers. But they play Werner down the left wing, essentially, right? Um, so I think what happens is Andre Silva also likes making runs down the left-hand space. So that leaves the whole sort of center-right area open. So Sabato like sometimes go from right wing to right mid all the way down to Cam. Um, and and I think there was actually uh I think it was a I think it was a chance against Man City. I think it was at Cam. He got the ball. He laid it off down the fullback made a run forward. I think it was Henricks. I think that was the fullback's name. Um, he passed off to Henricks. It was a, he should have probably scored. The right back should have scored, but he I think yeah. he scuffed a shot, missed a target. Um, but yeah, he just I think reads the game very well. Um, yeah, he's a very intelligent footballer, which. At, at his age and with his attacking profile is pretty yeah. cool to see that he's willing to, you know, also lay the ball off for, for another type of scoring opportunity. So, yeah, I'm, I don't think he's going to have the problem of, like, necessarily being too selfish with the ball. He's very intelligent in that manner. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I think he's played under good managers as well. I think Marco Rosa yeah. at Leipzig is a very good manager. Um, 
and I, as we said, Klopp's a genius. So hopefully, he knows yeah. what, what he's doing. I think Liverpool are coming back with a force. Yeah, yeah. Are there any club signings that are there any club signings that haven't worked before? Probably Naby Keita. Yeah, yeah, Naby Keita was all right. Um, um, Nunez is probably hmm. too. I think Nunez actually did it right. I think it's overhated them. Um, I was about to say Nunez gets too much hate. Like he was yeah, never. Yeah. He's got like 15 goals, never... which isn't that bad. Exactly, which is a great season for a striker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. 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 Um, who else has failed? He's still raw. You know, he'll yeah, get better. He's still raw. Yeah, he needs to, yeah. like, he could have scored 25, 30. Easy. He had the yeah. chances. Um, mm-hmm. Liverpool fans call him the, the chaos merchant. That's what they call him, Nunez. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I think the other thing with Solosai, um, I've just got it up here. Um, I think um, his passing. I think he's a very. I think he like genuinely might be up there in some of the sort of the best in the German league at least. Yeah. Um. Like he can literally like thread like needles, bro. He can thread needles through like the smallest gaps. Yeah, I've um, seen some of those passes. Yeah, yeah. I think there was a. I can't remember the exact play. Um. Essentially, he had like three or four people on him, and he sort of he he took his first touch left, and then he outside the foot, basically over the three or four defenders, huge vertical space, and he got it to the man. And I was like, mm. that, that's a ridiculous pass. And he yeah. also has that like, sort of fake Travella thing that he does at like, center. I know um, exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's, he, yeah, he's exciting. Know, I've already seen some comparisons to Kevin De Bruyne, which, you know, obviously he's still very young. He's a long way to go. Yeah. But he, he plays in like that same style. Like his vision yeah, yeah. is incredible. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think I, I see the De Bruyne. Um, yeah, I see the De Bruyne. If I was to compare him, like his player profile stylistic to anyone, I'd probably say De Bruyne. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think if he was a bit better defensively, I could see like a Bernardo potentially, just mm, from yeah. coming in from that right as well. But I think defensively, he can improve a bit. Um, but he works hard defensively. And I think that's what you need in a club team. I think you just need that sort of hard working machine. And um, if you're in a club team, you're going to be running up and down the yeah, pitch the whole exactly. game. So. Um, and I think like, Defending that right space isn't that urgent anymore in a club team because yeah. basically what happened before when they played the four two three, Trent would push straight up, right? So that'd be this whole gap behind Trent and Henderson and Wijnaldum used to cover that gap. Um, and the reason Liverpool yeah. struggled last year was because their midfielders weren't fast enough to cover that gap. So like people kept hating on Trent's right. defending, um, which to an extent is sometimes not good. Like in in the boxes, defending can definitely improve. But like, yeah. Klopp has said this multiple times, multiple press conferences. Like, Trent isn't meant to defend that space behind him. His role is right. to go up. So that's like Henderson's role or someone else's role to defend behind him. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you had an aging midfield, but you yeah, know, I think with this transfer window, they've yeah, taken exactly. care of that problem. Um, yeah, exactly. The aging midfield definitely improved. But like, to an extent, I think Klopp's switching system ensures that that right space doesn't need to be defended now. So Sabasla is not right. going to be having to do that sort of urgent defensive work. He's just going to have to do urgent pressing work. Which, right. as we said, you, you have to do it with the club team. Um, yeah. So, yeah, well, we agree on that good signing, I reckon. Um, Absolutely. Um, you know, it, one more point. I think, it's kind, I think it's kind of a stupid point, but I'm sure people will bring it up. Yeah, like yeah. the Bundesliga tax. Yeah, you know, yeah. This, like, yeah, idea yeah, that yeah, you come yeah, from yeah. the Bundesliga, you're not going to perform as well in the Premier cool. League. Yeah, you know, yeah. obviously, you know, Timo Werner, maybe that, that kind of applied to him. I but Erling so Haaland has hit the ground running. I think Sabazalai will also hit the ground running. Um, yeah, I, I think his. I just think his overall play style suits the Prem pretty well. Yeah, I, I don't know. I just Liverpool don't have many like flop flop signings. Right. Um, I think that's the biggest club finds a way in the system, and he doesn't necessarily go for like big big names. So like that pressure isn't on them. Like Nunez is only yeah. signing that Rumba was like immense pressure from day one. Right. Um, Gagpo potentially, but like 
Um, Gakpo came in when Liverpool were pretty bad, so the expectations weren't. weren't, weren't, weren't I mean, Gakpo kind of came out of nowhere. He just yeah, had an amazing yeah. World yeah, Cup, and then randomly, he just randomly signed up. I thought United yeah. were going to get him. <laughs> right. He just went to Liver. Um, yeah. Um, let's move on to Timber. Uh, I think that's a, yeah. that's a very, very interesting signing. I, I like watching Julian Timber a lot. What are your initial thoughts yeah. on Julian Timber? I think he's the most interesting signing, probably out of the ones we're going to talk about. Yeah. Because. As a, so, as a defender, I think his, his attacking profile is really good. I mean, you, I've seen some, some amazing through balls. He has, obviously, some great vision. Um, he also gets into really good attacking positions in the box for a defender. Um, I don't know how well he's going to mesh into the Arsenal system. I'm going to have to see. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the attacking point that you made, I think, yeah, I think he's one of the best sort of ball-playing defensive prospects in Europe. Yeah. And I think that's what Mikel Arteta wants because um, Gabriel did that last season, although they played different sides of the defense. But I, I think I could definitely see Timber. Um, I can see many things from Timber, which is why I think he's such a good signing for how young he is. I, I can see him be a CDM. I can see him be an inverted fullback. Um, and I can see him just play in regular back three and just be the ball-playing centre-back. Yeah. Um, and I, I had some sort of statistics here um, regarding okay. sort of his his ball playing ability. Um, sorry, just let me put them up. Um, yeah. yeah so he um, so first of all, his ball retention was 88th percentile in the Champions League. Um, his link up passing ranked to the 95th percentile in the Champions wow. League. Um, and he last season he had 70 percent of his touches within the midfield in the attacking third. So he's clearly willing to go up. Um, right. Obviously, you can say that uh, in the um, the Eredivisie uh, for Ajax, it's a bit easier to do. Um, yeah. But I think the Champions League stats indicate that he's willing to do it in Europe as well. Um, Absolutely. And uh, I think this is with the most sort of alarming stat of all: his progressive passes and passes in the final third. So essentially, the amount of passes he gets into the attacking outlets. Yeah. Um, it was ranked in the top percentile in the. Um, in out of any defender in the world. So essentially he's better than wow. 99% of defenders in terms of making progressive passes. Um, and we saw that from Arsenal last year. That's what Arteta likes to do. He likes to play the high line, um, mm-hmm. to regain the ball back very quickly, which is why he signed Declan Rice, which we'll get into. Um, yep. <laughs> regain the ball back very quickly and this get his centre-backs playing into these vertical spaces, getting Odegaard, Jackar, party involved, laying out to Martinelli, Saka. Basically, they, they try to create chaos. Um, the best it way is I, chaos. It's like controlled I, chaos. Exactly. The best way I try to... Describe Arsenal as, a, and, I, and I hate to do it because they, I think they're unique in their own way. But I, I basically see like half of Man City and half of Liverpool in them. You get that yeah. attacking chaos, like overloads, runs coming in from everywhere. Um, right. But they're more winger dependent, so sort of like they're more width dependent. Liverpool are sort of more a bit mid central. Like, yeah, I mean, more straightforward. One the, yeah, one of the major struggles that Liverpool had last year was Salah's positioning. Like they had him too wide at the start of the season. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't scoring as much because usually, like, yeah, he's a right winger, but he plays sort of the, the right half space, like down the box. Um, but last right. season they had they basically had him on the touchline because of the way Nunez played, and he had to basically fix that. Um, with Arsenal, yeah. though, they're they're willing to play the wingers on the touchline, like they like getting Saka and Martinelli involved from wide Absolutely. because that's that's how they play, that's their profile. Um, and but then the sort of the chaos in possession and the, the, the high pressing, um, that's Liverpool, but I guess it's the control in possession, the sort of flexibility in midfield that's so Guardiola esque. Um, exactly, yeah. Any, any, no, I mean, I mean I, you look at some of the goals that they scored last season, and it yeah. was, I mean, you would have 
seven, almost like Tiki Taka style sometimes. You'd have yeah, seven yeah. extremely short passes and then Martin yeah, and yeah. Odegaard would score yeah, exactly. a goal. So, exactly. And, so, I mean, and, and, you know, watching Urien Timber's highlights, I think he will fit in there pretty yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, Arteta, we know Arteta has a, has a Guardiola influence. Um, Zinchenko, uh, Jesus, yeah. assistant coach at Man City. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, so we, we, we know that... Um, I think he has a clear plan for Timber, but for me, I, I think, I think it's very hard for Timber. To, for me, like this would totally be clipped up in the future in a few years. This <laughs> yeah. is totally clipped up. But I, I find it very hard to see Julian Timber being a flop in any way, just because yeah, of the I amount don't... of positions. Right. No, I agree. I, I don't think he's going to be a flop. Um, I think he might. Maybe he'll take a little bit of adjusting to to the to the 100%. Premier League and to and to the Arsenal system. But I think in in the long run he'll be a good signing. Do you think he could? At all, be a maybe a defensive liability for Arsenal. I could totally see. Not that he's a make, bad defender, but I could totally see him make a few mistakes um, next yeah. year defensively. I could totally see a Arsenal fan TV um, yeah. pointing out <laughs> by a few matches already. Uh, he's, yeah. he's quite defensively raw. I think that's a word I'd use. He can be raw and brash. He likes to he likes to go to ground so easily. Um, I was right. watching the I was watching the Dutch Cup final, like because I, I wrote a piece on um, Timber for uh, one of the websites I write for. Um, mm-hmm. um, and I they they assigned me to watch the Dutch Cup final because he he was essentially assigned to man mark um, Luke De Jong in that game. I think it was yeah. Ajax versus PSV, and PSV a pretty good team. Um, in fact, uh, did they uh, they might have won the league. They won the league. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they got they have what Javi Simons. Um, they have Luke De Jong. Um, they have a few other good players. Um, so yeah, Timber is essentially assigned to man mark Luke De Jong, and I think man marking he's actually pretty good. Um, mm. Like I think when you want him to stay tight to someone, when you want him to just crowd someone, like essentially out physical them, he's really good. But I think he gets lost sort of a, a bit more sort of a zonal, um, a zonal system. Yeah, uh, I, I think sometimes his positioning gets a bit, a bit lacking, and I don't blame him because he loves going up and down, up and down, up and down. Right. Um, and yeah, the the rashness and the the rawness I was talking about. He likes slide tacking a lot, man. And it worries. He definitely me. does. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> the red card tendency. To um, be fair, though, I think um, so. I yeah. did. Yeah, well, one of his stats. He has a seventy-one percent win rate in defensive duels, which is still very decent. good. This is still quite yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. Um, especially for someone his age. Yeah, I, look, I think Arteta would definitely have to do a lot of work in, in the defensive end, especially for the yeah. the Premier League. But um, the one thing I hate, the narrative I hate is like height, meaning he won't be good. I'm like, brother, look at Lisandro Martinez. Yeah, like the yeah, same exactly. team, same like, and I mean, Ten Hag wanted Timber as well. So like, right. it's not like only Arsenal wanted, like most teams in the no. world wanted. So um, I think they see something in him. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think defensively, yeah, I agree. Um, good work to me. Um, what do you reckon about his sort of press resistance? Because I think that's obviously a big thing if you're going to play for mm-hmm. Arsenal, because you're going to have a lot of the ball. Um, and I think press resistance is what's going to make Arsenal like Premier League contenders because the, their right. their rivals are teams that press high. Man City aren't yeah. going to play timid against Arsenal. Liverpool aren't going to play timid against Arsenal. Um, no. Honestly, like I can see, I mean, I can see United definitely being a bit more sort of aggressive this year with some of the right. signings they're making. Um, yeah. So I think if he makes mistakes like Tommy Asa did last year, for example, I don't know if you watch it. Did you watch the Arsenal City game? Oh. The one where he made oh, two yeah. mistakes. <laughs> Oh yeah, I watched that one. I felt yeah. bad for Tomiyasu. That was an amazing yeah. KDB goal, but I felt bad for Tomiyasu. Yeah, yeah. So like, I think his press resistance becomes very, very key. Um, yeah. And I think that's part of the reason Arteta signed because I think he is 
so good, like tilting his body shape, and he doesn't lose. Right, he barely loses ball. Um, well, you know, you know. So Alex said it best. What do you what do you say? Um, attack wins you games, defense wins yeah. you titles. Yeah, so yeah. I mean, I think you could see. I mean, Arsenal were at the top of the league last season for what, over two hundred something days, um, and yeah, it was yeah. literally in the last eight weeks of the they season. They lost the clock. Lost the clock. You know, yeah, but it was just like you really need those good defenders and who who are who are intelligent who know to lock a game down. Yeah, you know, to just see it, to see it to the final whistle, so you can win the game. And I feel mm-hmm. like at the end, maybe they were lacking a little bit of that, like. I don't know, defensive work rate or just mentality, something like yeah. that, which hopefully um, Timber can provide. Yeah, and I, I just think he's, he's just so, I think, um, I don't know if technical, technically good is the right word, because I, I think there are, I've seen better defenders technically than Jerry Timber, but yeah. I, I think, like, I think to an extent, um, and I know we're sort of creating a bit of a tactical piece right now, uh, where we're talking tactics, but I think to an extent, sort of divert from tactics and sort of talk about intangibles these sort of unmeasurable aspects of a player's personality in game mm-hmm. i think to an extent he's very confident like he's and to an extent yeah. it's like a, a sense of nonchalance um yeah and i guess if it goes wrong i can totally see it being labor as arrogance um right i think that's part wrong. of that rawness that you mentioned yeah, that he has. Yeah, yeah. but he's exactly. not afraid you know to exactly. go for the slide tackle or to, to um, run to the box yeah yeah and i think that's what makes his sort of press resistance so good because i think he just he knows that he's not going to lose the ball very often like even if it's mm. he's not technically the best, he's I think I think in terms of his technical skills, his 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 best ability is sort of his um body positioning. So I think when a when a player is trying to tackle him, he he tilts his body very well. Um, he gets out of space. Um, and he passes it usually quite horizontally. Um, I think that's one thing by the way that Arteta can work on with Timber, sort of his vertical passes into spaces, because um. I mean, if he was playing for a team like, let's say, Liverpool, then it would be more of an issue being a primarily horizontal passer because Arsenal do love getting the wingers involved, as we talked about before. So, yeah. like, passing into the wings horizontally is not the worst. Um, it's not a problem. Yeah, so, but I think um, Arteta would definitely want him to sort of pass into the likes of Odegaard, uh, Havertz, especially, oh, Havertz as well. I totally Havertz, forgot they, I forgot, I totally they forgot they got Havertz. Yeah, man. yeah. Brother, That's a big Apparently, going to be nuts this year, man. It's going to be insane. Yeah, I, I generally can't call it. Like, I mean, I guess I can call it. I think City will probably be up there somewhere, um, if not winning. Yeah. But I, I mean, think that's they're going to yeah, have more favorites. They're going to have more Absolutely. Competitors. Arsenal are stronger. Liverpool are stronger. United are stronger. Newcastle Chelsea are doing some stronger. Stuff. Newcastle Chelsea, are stronger. Yeah. Um, even Brighton. Aston Brighton. Yeah, even um, Spurs got a new manager with Pastor Um yeah, I, I'm not sure. They probably won't go title. Um, no. I wouldn't be I wouldn't be surprised if they get like a fifth or a fourth even. Yeah. Um the top four is so hard to call. It's ridiculously hard to call. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly. Um yeah, any any final points with um any Tim with Timber? I'm looking at here, I've got nothing. No, I mean I I just think I think he's a smart signing on uh, Arteta's part. Yeah, I, yeah, I think Arteta's really doing his homework and he's really trying to build a long term project. That's why to yeah. me he was the most interesting signing. Yeah, yeah. Um yeah, I guess we got a bit of a Arsenal and um, Liverpool themed episode because we, we want to Declan Rice. I mean, yeah, we'll, we'll, a, do <laughs> we'll do Guardiola. We'll do Guardiola. We'll Guardiola at the end to um, get some variety. Talk about some other teams. Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's so many interesting signings. Like we could talk about Tenali. Um, we could talk about exactly. um, Jackson at, at Chelsea, the the man for Villarreal. Um, right. There's so many good signings occurring in the Premier League. Obviously, we could talk about Mason Mount and United. Um, yeah. 
eventually Onana they're going to sign, which would be sick, by the way, if they sign Onana. Um, That's in the final stages, is, is it? Or are they yeah, still... Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's getting there. It's getting there. I reckon they'll, yeah. I reckon they'll get it done. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, That'd be good um, for them, I think. Oh, Nana's insane. 100%. 100%. All right. What do you reckon about Declan Rice? Declan Rice. Um, obviously, phenomenal player. I think that goes without saying. Uh, whatever you think about the you know, Europa Conference League, he still won European silverware yeah. for West Ham. Their first trophy in 43 years. Oh, you know, I, I don't think awesome. you can... Yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's true. I don't think you can overlook that now. I, and I, th- I think especially for his youth, um, I actually wrote a piece about this the other day. You know, well, we, we talked a little bit about. I think I, think I, I, think I had to read. I think I had to read. Okay. It was on your publication, right? I think I had to read it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The, you know, like the last couple of weeks of their season, I think they really needed a boost in mentality. Somebody that could kind of take that. Not, not to say Odegaard is not a leader, but I think mm-hmm. there is a little bit of um, a little bit of mentality missing in the team. And I, I actually think Declan Rice can bring that to Arsenal. Yeah. Yeah. He knows, um, he knows what it's like to win. You know, he's a winner. 100%. 100%. I think, um, yeah, leadership-wise, of course, um, yeah. which is essentially what you're sort of getting at now. Uh, I think, um, and I think you do have to consider that. Like, I, I don't think you can just buy a player just because he's a tactically a good fit. Um, obviously, right. I think the, the main consideration has to be, like, yeah, how good is he tactically? How good is he as a player? But there have to be, I think, a lot of these sort of off-field considerations about. And with Declan Rice being so young, like, how old is he? He's, like, 20 early 20s right 24 right i think so 24 right so like um you could totally see him being staying at arsenal for 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 a while um yeah if it goes well uh, hopefully Um, you know if yeah yeah but um i guess yeah if we're going to talk about it tactically or sort of stylistically um i think it's perfect for an arteta system and we sort of alluded to it early on I mean, I've said that line like a few times now. I think Timber's perfect for our tennis system. I think yeah. Rice is perfect for our tennis system. And I think that just shows that Edu Gaspar and um, Mikel Arteta are doing some good, good business. Um, yeah. But yeah, in, in, basically the way Arsenal like to play, for, for the, those are not sort of aware. Um, and maybe in post-production, I'll add in some images. Um, sort of, I hope you guys, the, the, the viewers slash listeners understand a bit better. Um, but the way you like to play, they have this sort of high line, essentially. Um, and as soon as the opposition looks to loses the ball, they want to win it back um, pretty quickly. Very similar to sort of Liverpool to an extent, and Man City yeah. against the very weaker teams, or, or even Man City against um, Real Madrid in the second leg at the Etihad. That's like some one of the best performances yeah. I've seen by a team. Yeah, that was insane. It was, it was ridiculous. Um, and there is no one better to have um, that Declan Rice. Um, I was reading an article from the Athletic, which, by the way. Um, it, it's behind a paywall, so I won't be able to link it. But if, if anyone is sort of in the position to get an athletic subscription, um, I highly recommend it. And I went, we're not even being paid for this. This, this is yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> no, they have some good content, they got yeah. some good content, even the YouTube stuff. You like TIFO, um, I love TIFO exactly. Um, yeah, so stuff from the athletic was basically it was regarding Declan Rice's true tackle win rate, and for the viewers. For those that don't know what true tackles are, it's essentially tackles plus challenges. Um, so the amount of tackles a, a player makes uh, compared to the challenges that they've lost, so the tackles that they've lost, the duels that they've lost, and the fouls they've committed. That's how they determine the true tackle rate. Um, and his true tackle rate was 70%, or rounded up to 70% from 113 tackles, um, which was the, the best in the Premier League last year. Wow. So it literally yeah. shows he's the best ball winner there is. 
Um, yeah. So he's the best player for this sort of, I like to call it the, the mopping up role. Um, mm. I like to think of it like a, there's any sort of uh, mess on the floor, Rice is there to clean it up. Right. Uh, that's, that's the, the minute that ball is loose, he'll he be on there. It. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I think, um, sorry, I'll, I'll get your thoughts in a, in a moment, but I think another point I, I want to make regarding that is because he's, he's a two-way player. He, he's a box-to-box midfielder. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think you can just call him a defensive mastermind, even though he is. He's probably one of the best defensive um, midfielders in, in the Premier League, like both ball-winning wise, but also in like a set of defense, like inside a pivot. Like he would do a very good job, um, right? Uh, we, we, which we'll come to um, in a bit. Um, but yeah, so um, what I was going to say is that when he wins this ball back, his defensive abilities are so progressive. Like his ability to drive into these vertical spaces, um, I think that's going to be a major part of a lot of this. what happens when he drives in. What happens when he drives into vertical spaces will be that um, there'll be players attracted to him. There's players attracted to right. him, the likes of Odegaard, Saka, Martinelli. Odegaard. Martinelli, that Saka. are open. Yeah. Exactly, right. Um, and Rice has the ability to go into the box himself and potentially do something. Like, he's, not, mm. like, uh, he's not necessarily a deep. Like, I've seen him score goals from West Ham, surging. I think he scored one of the conference league. Which was his grand, so pretty ridiculous goal. Yeah, I think um, he did. Yeah, that was a great goal. So, exactly. Um, so, yeah, you're going to get a two way player. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I like. I, I'd like to grab your thoughts. Yeah, I th- I think his biggest. Obviously, you know, we talked about his his defensive work rate. He's going to be amazing for Arsenal on the defensive end, which I think they do need. I think that'll help them in terms of um, attacking. You know, it's funny when City were potentially in the race when they were bidding for Declan yeah, Rice. Yeah. A lot of a lot of uh, City media and City fans were saying, you know, obviously we'd like to get him. He'd be he'd mm. be a great. He's a great player, but City don't really need him. Whereas I feel like. Arsenal, he's he's almost like the perfect fit for Arsenal yeah, in their yeah. system, because like think, you said, he's going to be another threat, driving into the box, uh, uh, you know, attracting defenders, and then like as you said, you have you know you have the likes of Saka, of Odegaard, of Martinelli, who are then going to be given even more space. I mean, Martinelli can breeze past defenders exactly. even when they're right on him. So yeah, yeah, um, it'll be dangerous. Yeah. Um, I, I guess to expand on him defensively, um. I think it's this game awareness that makes him such a good ball winner because mm. he just knows where the spaces are. So he knows where yeah. he needs to be. He knows, I guess, to continue this mopping analogy, he knows where the mess is going to be. Like he anticipates where um, there's going to be, I don't know, uh, spillings of water or food. Right. <laughs> to, to, to further the analogy. Yeah. Um, so I was going to talk about that um, Umiru piece that I alluded to earlier. So he basically okay. wrote a piece about all these new midfielders that are signed in the the Premier League, um, and he basically classified them into um, like three types. Uh, I think he, I think it was anchor, ship, and I can't remember the third one. But basically, Declan Rice was classified as a as an anchor, essentially. Like he he holds the midfield together, but he also sort of furthered the midfield in terms of their attacking abilities. Um, and I think that's what sort of makes him so good um, that he's just like mm-hmm. he's a glue to an extent. He's he's a glue yeah. of the of the midfield. Um, and the, the reason in that is, role as a sorry, continue. yeah, no, sorry, go on. Yeah, I was gonna say, especially in that role as a, as a CDM, like I mean, that's one of the that's one of the positions where you have to be extremely intelligent and you have to see what's going on on the entire pitch, kind of all at once. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, no, I think you're right. I think um, especially for a player of his age, he he does that really well. And as you say, he kind of anticipates where the game is going, like where are the 
the tactical battle is going to happen, and he's kind of yeah, there before anyone else is. Yeah, and um, to sort of, I guess, sum up your, your defensive midfield point, I think it's one of the best sort of pivots in a settled defense in the world. Like at, at a stage when, let's say, the opposition make it past Arsenal's attacking half, and Arsenal then have to sort of settle into a structured defensive structure. Like, um, they can't just be pressing like maniacs anymore. They actually have to have like a, a set midfield line, a set back line. Mm-hmm. Rice is so good in that. Like, we saw it with him and Calvin Phillips for England in the Euros in 20, right. 2021. Um, that was one of the great pivots. Uh, he still did it for England in the World Cup. I thought he was quite good. Uh, for West Ham, he, he's a great pivot. So, um, even defensively, he gives them a lot more stability. And with the likes of sort of Timber around him, and you still have Gabriel, Saliba, Ben White, um, Zinchenko, Thomas Partey, even. Uh, I'm, I'm, I, think, I think Rice is probably a Partey replacement. Is that what you think? I would agree. That's what I thought. Yeah. The minute, yeah, the minute yeah. I heard about the signing. Yeah, yeah. I, I think he's versatile, though. I think he could potentially play the, the, Chac- the Granite Jacker role if he wanted to. Mm-hmm. But I reckon it's going to be Havertz, LCM. Odegaard a bit more advanced mm. and Rice is the sort of the, the CDM slash box to box ball winning midfielder. Yeah. Um, that's what I see it to be. But I wouldn't be surprised if they hold on to Thomas Partey. Um although I've heard rumors of them looking to sign like Chua Many, um, or even Lavia. So like, Lavia, possibly, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to see yeah, like yeah. yeah, I'm trying yeah, Chua Many, like I I don't see Real Madrid letting him go. Um no. <laughs> but like I'm trying to see like if that's the rumors are being linked to, then um it becomes interesting what they're planning to do in terms of a, a midfield structure. But I think as of now the most predictable structure is Rice CDM, um have it centered in front of them, and then you have your your attacking trio. Um, yeah. and I guess if it goes wrong, you could definitely see Habits go back to potentially that sort of center forward role. I hope he doesn't. I think it's wasted there. Um, I know. Yeah, I think yeah, we saw yeah. enough of that with Chelsea. Chelsea, yeah, yeah, none of that, none of that. <laughs> I mean, he's a great player. That's why it was. It felt like kind of a waste. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, let's take a bit of a bit of a break, and then we'll come back with some Guardiola stuff. Yeah, cool. Sure. Let's do it. Let's talk about Wimbledon. Currently, I'm recording this on Monday morning, Australian time. Um, so the results that we have so far is that Novak Djokovic is two sets up. Winning two tri-wakes on, on Hurkats. Um, that's been suspended due to the curfew in Wimbledon. They'll res- resume tomorrow. Um, resume today, sorry. Today's schedule is um, you have Chris Eubanks with Stefanos Tsitsipas, Daniil Medvedev with Lecheka, um, then you have Dimitrov with Holger Rune, and then the big one, Carlos Alcaraz versus Matteo Berrettini. The women's schedule is you have um, Keys with Andrea, you have the Brazilian youngster, um, I like to call her um, Beatriz Aradmaia. I like to call her Beatriz, as I like to call her, because that, that's her name. is hard to um, pronounce. And you have her as Rebecca, the, 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 the champion, the sort of the defending champion. Um, and you have Alexandra with Sabalenka, and you have the big one, Ons Jabot with Petra Kvitova, which is going to be a scintillating clash. But I think before we sort of talk about the clashes that are upcoming, let's talk about the major headlines from the week. And I think we, if you're going to talk about the major headlines from the week, you have to start with Carlos Alcaraz and Novak Djokovic. Um, Alcaraz, um, coming into the tournament, if there's one surface where he isn't sort of hyped as the challenger to the throne, it's probably Wimbledon. 
Um, but with sort of the likes of Kyrgios and Berrettini not up to scratch, Yannick Sinner having question marks over how clutch he is in Grand Slams, to an extent Alcaraz was the, the challenger to Djokovic just thrown in the lead-up, and that was probably because of how he performed at Queen's. Um, and the rhetoric that was coming from his end in the lead-up to Queen's, um, in which he said that he was using Queen's as a platform to... Um, work on his movement, movement that he's learning of watching the likes of uh, Andy Murray and, and Roger Federer, movement that is constantly improving and up winning Queens. So um, he was, he seemed ready to, to win, I don't know, but to, to make a deep run, definitely. Um, his big winding forehand is, is ridiculous, he, he has a good serve, um, and he's learning the movement, he's starting to get into less awkward positions, and I think that Queen's win was huge for Carlos Alcaraz because he looks booming with confidence and more dominant than he ever has on the cross surface. The forehand is an absolute rocket. Uh, I think there was one shot in his, um, I think it might have been his second match where you could, the sound was borderline terrifying. You could hear the gras- the gasp of the crowd as he, as the forehand sort of went off his racket and um, ultimately into the ground and, and, and was a winner. There was no chance. Um, against against Jari from Chile, a, a great player who's having a great season. There were a few hiccups. It wasn't it wasn't vintage Alcaraz, but he held he held on, and that was good. That's what he needs to do. Berrettini though is going to be different gravy and a different test. Um, and we'll discuss we'll discuss what, what's going to go with Matteo Berrettini. But let's move on to um, Novak Djokovic. I wouldn't say we have got an imperious Djokovic performance yet, but he is such a good match-by-match manager. And um, I think the tennis podcast, by the way, their work is the great, probably the best there is in the, in the tennis scene. Um, the tennis podcast, um, uh, I think they use the right word. Um, it is essentially, it's a sort of efficiency, but to an extent, it's sort of like maximization of of resources to an extent sort of a um an economy of scale that Djokovic creates in the way he plays um he puts in what he needs to get the result um his first set um in i think his first match had close to zero enforced errors uh, in the next few sets it started to stack up a bit but it's his first it's his dominance that even despite making un- un- unforced errors um and sort of just being able to return everything and, and move to exactly where he needs to move. It's what makes him such an all, all-around grass player. And it's boring, but Djokovic will probably win this tournament again. And it's, he's so good, and he's probably the best ever. Um, I'm a Rafael Nadal guy, personally. And Novak Djokovic, I, I don't know what, you can, what else you can say. His game and his match has been, his, his game has been analyzed for years. And the, the same things are said. Uh, best defender in the world, solid serve, great forehand, great backhand, great size, great drop shot, great movement, great endurance, great stamina, great mental strength, great everything. There's not much you can analyze about Novak Djokovic, but it's still going to be interesting when he does come against the likes of maybe Yannick Sinner, uh, Rublev next match. Uh, Bublik with some um, Djokovic would have been very interesting, but uh, Bublik didn't unfortunately get through. Um, in a, in a classic that he played with Rublev, which we also discussed. But I think one of the other great matches, one of the other great storylines from the, the first week was um, Stefano Sissipas in general, but his matches against Dominic Thiem and then Andy Murray. Let's start off with Stefano Sissipas versus Dominic Thiem. Um, I thought we saw very positive things from Dominic Thiem, um, probably other than the second set. 
His slice shot was, I thought, very, very effective in that match against Sotsapas. And he was running around well. He was getting to a lot of the points. He, he looked fit and he looked a bit more confident in his movements. Um, something that we definitely did not see in the French Open. You sort of saw his body give up on him and sort of his mind giving up on him because it was a fifth set enjoyed match. He's like, can I do it? Can I last? Um, but against Sotsapas, I thought he believed that, yeah, he can last. What cost him was probably, I think, the inconsistency in his serves at times. Um, and I think Sitsipas was just playing a pretty good level. I, I don't think Sitsipas played as high of a level as he did against Andy Murray, but the Sitsipas team match was high, high level, which is why I'm saying that there's positive signs that we can take out of this from Dominic theme. Um, Sitsipas has his ability to use such great angles. Um, and he plays some shots which really get players into awkward body positions. Um, and he did that, um, he did that towards Steams, but I think it was just the, the recurring story, which has sort of been a recurring story throughout his career, was his inability to convert some of the breakpoints that he had. Um, but the spectacle, the spectacle had to be admired. Both players were putting in every ounce, both showed glimpses of how good they are at tennis. They, they have great winning shots, um, very equally contested players and that's but ultimately Stefano Sissipas got the job done. And he moved on against Andy Murray, which um, we will discuss now. I thought against Andy Murray, Stefano Sitsipas played a hell of a match. Absolute hell of a match. He showed great composure to hold his nerve on big occasions, especially when he was 2-1 to one sets down. He was going into a second day, and clearly there was what? Um, the whole crowd against him. The, to an extent, the whole of the tennis world against him because they just wanted to see Andy Murray have one more run because Andy Murray was playing an equally high level of tennis. Um, the sister pass, his forehead was dominant once again, the angles that I talked about, and I thought he showed great touch play too, great uh, slice shots, few good drop shots, few wasted opportunities. The, the, the drop at Wimbledon is, is one that you have to be very sort of perfect at your at your touch play like Djokovic even rarely uses the drop shot but that's probably because he has so many other weapons um I think another major factor not to take it away from the way Sitsipas played um was him being the younger and fitter player I think obviously helps when there is a, a two-day match um because there was probably a high possibility that Andy Murray woke up very stiff um, and Stefano Sissipas probably not as stiff because he was younger and fitter. Um, but I think it's a double-edged sword to make that argument. It was towards the end of the first day in that, um, the end of that third set before Andy Murray sort of um, held on at the end. He had that huge, large um, sort of shriek of pain. It looked like his hip, I think it was. And he had some sort of awkward landing. And you, you worried if you continued that night, so maybe the break actually helped him recover from one of the pain that was there. So yeah, it is a double-edged sword, and I don't think you can take much away from Andy Murray. I thought he played very well. Um, just that I thought Stefano Sitsipas played at a, at a higher level. Um, and yeah, that was it. One sort of storyline of success, um, sort of, of one storyline that was not of success, um, pardon me, and a player that I expected to do well, a player that I, may, I even maybe expected to make a run to the, the semi-finals, um, was Sebastian Corda. To lose in the first round, to be fair, he, he played a player who probably played one of the best matches of his life. Um, 
that Corda, I, I don't know, he didn't show that steel and that grit that we need a player like Sebastian Corda to show with the amount of talent he has, especially in the grass surface. Um, and to be fair, it's a story that there is, it's a bit recurring in the ATP tour. You have the likes of Yannick Sinat, amazing talent, but he, he sometimes flakes. You have the likes of Stefano Sertipas, amazing talent, he flakes sometimes. Zverev, um, Kasper Ruud, oh, the Kasper Ruud is probably the one guy that you can't make that accusation of because he's reached three, three Grand Slam finals in the, in the last one and, a, one and three quarters of the season. Um, but Sebastian Corda, his serve just broke down and it was, it was a disappointing sight to see because I thought it would be nice for the tournament, it would be, it would be nice for the tournament to see Sebastian Corda make a run, but he couldn't unfortunately. Um, lack of break points converted as well. Fourth set was an absolute capitulation from, from Sebastian Corda. But yeah, uh, he was knocked down the first round. Um, that's how it is. Um, let's move to the... Uh, actually, before we move to WWTA tour, uh, we might as well just do... Uh, we might as well move in order. We might as well do Bublik Rublev first. Um, for me, one of the most fascinating matches of the tournament. Um, and I think even before the match actually occurred, it was a it was a very good sort of matchup. I think uh, I think that's the best way to yeah describe it. It was it was a very interesting matchup. I think it's such a fascinating matchup because in Rublev you have a person who grinds every angle and every bit of resource he can, while in um. Bublik, you have a, a player who has a serve that can tear opponents apart. He has usually gets some of the most aces in a, in, a, in a year in the, in the ATP tour. But um, Bublik's Achilles heel to, is his game awareness and sort of his, his stubbornness to play this sort of nonchalant way where he plays very strange shots at times. Um, conversely, in Rublev, he has a solid serve, but not a serve which will tear you apart, but his forehand can certainly tear opponents apart. And um, coming to the actual match, I, I don't think Bublik's serve was as imperious as, as expected. In fact, his serve cost him in the first set. He had two double faults in a row um, where in a game where he needed to sort of hold to take into tie break. Um, and I think another major theme of the match, and it started from the first set and probably gave Rublev a few too many points in the first set with, was um, Bublik's drop shot frequency um, and sort of his persistence with the drop shot when it was clear that it was being unsuccessful and quite ineffective. Um, they, they would just sit up very nicely for Rublev and he would read them every single time. There was one drop shot, however, that was quite remarkable in the fourth set. It was towards the end when um, Bublik um, barely held on to take it into the tie break. There was one drop shot that he, he used. Um, it was one of the most remarkable drop shots. For the most part, the, the, the strategy didn't work out, but he, he stuck, stuck with it. And at times, he sort of just played it for the for the sake of it, I felt like, and I think it was one of the factors that did cost him the match. Um, but I, I, I don't, I don't want to fault him too much because I, I thought Bublik certainly did play um, some good tennis. Um, I thought his best tennis came at the the end of the fourth set um, when he had to get it to the tiebreak after he, had, I think, gave two match points to Rublev, um, and then when he closed it out in the tiebreak with some remarkable forehands, sort of drop shots, and even underarm serves to go with it. Um, that was some prime Bublik, and you could see his confidence, his smile, his laugh, that the trademark Bublik, it was beaming. Um, and he was sort of at the peak of his abilities. Um, but perhaps the best tennis moment of the day came in the, the final game of the match. 
Rublev was just broken, and it was it was do or die time. He had to break Rublev's serve to to stand a chance and take it into a a, a tie break. You could see how hard Rublev was working. Got got to a stage where he let out a loud extended grunt with a down the line um backhand, um almost a grunt of desperation and relief that he had finally got the point that he had worked so hard for, but not so early. Rublev, nope. Rublev had put every inch of mobility and flexibility work that he had done behind the scenes into play, and reached out with his hand, got the ball back into play, and somehow got the point. Rublev's reaction summed it up perfectly. He stood there, tall, and stared back at Rublev in utter disbelief. The expression and multiple questions written over it. How did you do that? Why did you do that? Did I really lose that point? Wow, my Wimbledon is ended by that shot. It was a, a shot of luck, uh, as, as described by Andre Rublev, but I think it's a shot which describes his personality so well. He's a grinder. He will fight and maximize every inch of resource that he can maximize, and he did it. And he won against Novak Djokovic. How will Rublev do? Um, I wouldn't be surprised if he takes a set, but Rublev can sometimes play some very dumb shot options in, in a tiebreak, and Novak Djokovic is the tiebreak king, so that's going to be an important part of the match. Um, can his serve hold up against Novak? Can he return Novak's serve? Although he did pretty well in returning Bublik's serve, so I, I think he probably can return Novak's, Novak's serve. Um, I guess if Rublev takes a set, that Djokovic will probably win. Um, Coming into sort of previewing the, the second week on the men's side, obviously the, the major clash right now that is headlining is, is tonight. Alcaraz, Berrettini, Mateo Berrettini is back, ladies and gentlemen. Who would have thought after Stuttgart where he left the court in tears? But his grass pedigree, to an extent, can't leave you surprised. He had, I think, coming into his Wimbledon, he won, what, 35 out of 37 his last grass matches? And that record is obviously extended now because he's continued to win. His serve is dominant. Um, his forehand is dominant. But in Alcaraz, you have a person who is very seasoned and skilled. Um, so I'm not saying Swerev wasn't seasoned or skilled. I'm not saying Demon wasn't seasoned or skilled. But Alcaraz is the guy. He is the guy. He will run everything down. His movement is getting better. As we've discussed, he's a killer forehand. Probably one of the best on the tour. Um, and a pretty good serve as well. Uh, Alcaraz returning can sometimes be a bit weak, so it's going to be interesting to see how he can return Berrettini's serve. But um, I think Berrettini's fitness may also be tested a bit in this match because, as I said, Alcaraz runs to everything. He will grind you down. Um, and for Berrettini coming off of, a, of, a, of an injury in which he did not look very good at in that Stuttgart match. Um, to be fair to him, he's looked pretty good in these women's matches in terms of fitness. He played all five days in a row. And I thought he gave one of the one of the quotes of the week where he said that like playing tennis five days in a row is nothing to him after he was sort of crying about not playing tennis and on hospital bed. Um that was great to see, but I do think those five days will end up sort of eating up to him if he does progress later into that match, but even the tournament if he does somehow beat Alcaraz. I think Alcaraz in, in four or five. I wouldn't be surprised if it's a five setup, but I think Alcaraz is sort of endurance fitness. And probably right now a, a few more weapons. Um, because I think Berrettini still can hone his game on grass a bit more as his, as his fitness develops. I think right now this is sort of a, I'm not going to say it's a wild card run, because I think Berrettini's grass pedigree doesn't justify it's a wild card run. But I don't think this is a run as good that Berrettini was expecting. I think there are parts of his grass game that he knows is lacking because of his fitness. I think he plays one full season of ATP 
and he has a good cross preseason in next, into next year's Wimbledon. And you'd put him up there as one of the favourites, 100%. Berrettini is that good on cross. Um, I think Alcaraz, but it's going to be, I think, for now, for me, the matchup of the uh, of the tournament so far. Um, maybe others, it's about Murray or even Rublik, Rublik, Rublev. Um, the other matches, um, for the for the men's side, we have our um, Dimitrov, Olgarun. Very good on Dimitrov. He absolutely blew apart Francis Tiafo. Olgarun won one of the most remarkable matches at underarm served by his opponent in the fifth set. Um, he was 6-2 down in the tiebreak in the fifth set. He saved match points earlier. Right, it showed good, it showed good resilience and steel sometimes. Olgarun does lose a part. And he's there. He's there in the round of 16. He's there in week two, so you never know. Um, you've got Yannick Sinner. I think he'll get to the semis. Things are looking quite good. Um, does he have enough for Djokovic? Don't know. Apparently not. Um, Rublev, Djokovic, most likely. Um, and yeah, so that, that's what we got from the men's side. Um, let's focus on uh, the women's side now. Um, Iga Shriantek. Had an incredibly tough test against Belinda Bencic last night. She saved two match points in the second set before winning the tie break, and then the third, third set, six games to three. There wasn't much to separate the two, if I'm being honest, and that shows how high a level Belinda Bencic played. Perhaps the match of her life, an immense backhand. Um, I think what sort of was the distinguishing factor with Shriantek's ability on serve, especially second serve. She won 92% of her second serve points, which is an astoundingly high number. Um, her positioning and movement towards the end of the match was, was superb. Um, she was essentially fighting fatigue against these low, um, low positions and these correct positions to sort of strike the winners. Um, and I still think she's the one to beat, despite her self-admitted grass struggles. I think Igor Shriantek is, is the one to beat. Um, I think the person that can potentially beat her is obviously Rebecca or maybe Sabalenka. But I think the winner of the matchup of Pedra, um, Petra Kvitova and Anze Javor perhaps could be the Wimbledon champion. Um, a bold statement. But I think it's that high quality of a matchup for, a, for, a, for the start of the second week. Um, and I think this matchup comes down to sort of who holds their serve better. Um, Anze Javor's first serve rate was 51% in the previous match. While Kvitova is not also winning a plethora of second serve points. Um, if Javert is able to return Kvitova's serve and put pressure on her to play the serve out, um, then we could perhaps see, uh, see a lot of uns, un, un, unforced errors, errors from Petra Kvitova, as we saw against um, Stavanovic. However, Javert needs to ensure her first serve lands, as, as, as said above, her, her rate is drastically lower than Kvitova's is. Um, and with Kvitova, you had this sort of aura. I feel it's an intangible. You can't statistically measure it, but it's just this steely determination that she wants to win this whole thing. Um, but yeah, I don't think you can count out uh, Rebecca or uh, Sabalenka, especially with the way Sabalenka's been playing, um, especially with the way Rebecca plays on on grass. Um, it's heating up. The tournament is heating up. I, I wish the scheduling was better. Um, I, I wish the. The, the curfew restrictions weren't as prominent. Obviously, rain is uncontrollable, but even some of the, the rain delays and the, the starts of the delays can be better handled. But the tournament's heating up and it's certainly going to be interesting. Um, next week, we'll be back with the full review of the Wimbledon and perhaps also more transfer analysis, um, some Ashes analysis as well, um, and maybe talk about some of the F1 storylines. But for now, 
that's the sports show podcast for this week the first edition the first episode of the weekly edition where we discuss all the sporting storylines if you didn't enjoy and you're watching this on youtube please give a subscribe comment like share if you're watching this on your podcast app if you can give us a follow on your podcast app give a good review it only helps and your support is always much appreciated thank you and see you next week